Hi, and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where two people compulsively learn history and then attempt to make sure the other person has never heard it before and then tell it to you live. Not live, Even recorded. if that means we called the other one's husband first. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. Just because you know that I did that. I think it's a good thing. I mean, I might be just a bit more nervous about it than you are. I am dying to know why. Why that I'm nervous about it? Yeah. I don't know. I haven't gotten to the bottom of that. My therapist and I have a <laughs> list of other things that we're focusing on that feel like a higher priority rather than that compulsive <laughs> nature. Oh, well, okay. You do you, I guess. I mean, <laughs> I have to, I suppose, because doing so, no, doing somebody else, I, I have comments on that. I'm not going to continue out that thought. Um, really? I mean, I am married, so there are. That is an option. That is. <laughs> um, oh, my goodness. I, I'm Angie. That's Teresa. Oh, hey, we should do that part, huh? Yeah, I, ha I yeah. got it. <laughs> Nearly a, a year's worth of episodes and the intro is still where we just fall on our faces. So I've got that going <laughs> for me. Hey, winning. But I, I do want to say that I don't know how much intro small talk you want to do. Um, I I have a, a one that um, I, I should, I need a palate cleanser. I should not be the one okay. to go last. Okay. Because trust me, my story is a palate cleanser. Oh, thank God. <laughs> you know what? I feel like I can ask that from you and not expect it, but damn near. I mean, it's pretty safe to say you could expect it because I feel like Every time I've told you a story that maybe wasn't a palate cleanser, I asked ahead of time, is this okay? <laughs> right. Like, oh, dear, I am venturing into unknown territory. I may have mentioned murder. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And I mentioned murder in my uh, my sources several times. Well, you know, we all have a skill set. I mean, you know what? Look, I. OK, so can I just start? Yeah, I'm okay. here for it. All yeah. right. Don't mind me. I'm just sorting myself out. Thank God. Um, <laughs> so my sources are a book that I have now read twice because I read it when it came out and then I had to compulsively reread it so that I could cover this. Okay. And the reason why I asked you, why well, I, I reached out to your hubs, your husband, the man, um, is I <laughs> asked if you guys had seen or were planning on going to the movie theater to see Killers of the Flower Moon. And he had said no. And I went, good. Um, because my sources are Killers of the Flower Moon, the book, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by David Gran. History.com, The FBI's First Big Case, The Osage Murders by Christopher Klein. The National Park Service, they have a page on the Osage. Um, the podcast, Serial Killers, The Osage Murders, Parts 1 and 2. History.com, How Marriage and Murder Were Used to Steal Osage Oil Riches by Vincent Schilling. Okay. And this was one of those stories that when the book first came out and I read it, I went, oh my God, 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 oh my God. And then I have been really struggling with telling you this story. And so I haven't. And then I realized, oh my gosh, it's in theaters. I need to get off my tuchus and actually tell you the story so that you don't accidentally go to the movie theater and go, oh, that's a real story. Like, so this is nothing but spoilers. 
<laughs> so you're giving me the cliff notes. <laughs> I mean, if you knew the history, you'd still want to see the movie because it's got like Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Robert De Niro and I mean, our it boy looks Brendan amazing. Fraser. I almost wore my mummy shirt today. Little did you know I was going to come at you with a with a William or a Brendan Fraser. Um, yeah, you hit me like that. I know. Okay, so let me just start by saying in 1872, there was a tribe named the Osage that relinquished most of their lands due to white settlers encroaching on them. And so they decide that they're going to purchase um, and settle near the Cherokee in what is now Oklahoma. And when the Osage realized that they would need to resettle, they chose land that was so unappealing to the white man. It was rocky. It wasn't flat. It didn't seem suitable for farming. Um, they just didn't want to lose their land again. I mean, that's fair. Right? Like, they're like, look, this sucks. So we're going to make the best that we can. They end up buying 1.5 million acres. And Get it. Be- because the, tr- the, the, it, what, the land wasn't allocated for them, it gave them more ownership and more rights, particularly when... The U.S. goes to make Oklahoma state. They enter into negotiations with the Osage and a lawyer for the Osage slips in this provision, giving the Osage mineral rights, should any exist. Okay. And then an Osage man found an oil sheen on the water in the reservation. Oh, no. And so the Osage start leasing the rights to drill for oil on the reservation and all the proceeds to these leases are divided into quarterly payments among all the members of the tribe who had what was called head rights or, you know, basically like they, that they Mem- were getting memberships. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and these head rights, they'd set it up to where they could only be inherited. They couldn't be bought or sold. And this was to keep non-indigenous members from obtaining them. Okay. So this tribe really did a very good job at trying to protect its own interests. Good for them. Which I am so excited for, you know, when you hear about this. And so then it's now 1921, roughly just after they've struck oil and are starting to, you know, sell these oil rights. And the federal government decides that they're going to pass a law requiring the Osage members to, quote, prove competency with money or else be assigned a financial guardian. So do you remember oh, how we talked last about week this the other day and how I was a little <laughs> hot under the collar? It was because like this was in my brain and I was like, this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, so lawyers poured into the region eager to, you know, serve or, you know, just skim, steal, whatever. Whatever. Um, a 1924 study by the Indian Rights Association, a policy and advocacy group founded founded by non-Indians, estimated that the Guardians at that point had stolen at least $8 million directly from the accounts of their Osage wards. Wow. And that's not even in today's money. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Not. Yeah. You hear that, you're like, oh, I... I so in David Grant's book, he documents how Guardians dictated how and from whom the Osage were allowed to buy. And this was down to the brand of toothpaste. That is stupid. And many of the guardians would receive kickbacks from the shopkeepers by directing how the money spent. Of course. 
these guardianships were given or sold to prominent families in exchange for votes in exchange like for bribes like this was just ridiculous infuriating oh and so the competency to to have guardianship um to if you proved competency it's actually not necessarily linked to your financial acuity it's directly linked to the amount of indigenous blood that you have so if so, you are 100% indian the chance of you being found competent near zero okay that's what thank you for explaining it that way that's what i thought you meant but i was thinking well maybe i'm actually reading this backwards new no. new no. so that's that's the backdrop that we're working with Right. Okay. So the less Indian you are, the more competent you are. So do you have to, um, like, I'm assuming if you want to spend your money that your tribe earned, you had to go out and ask for a guardianship? Like, how does that No, work? the guardianships were assigned, but then you had to go to your guardian and you had to be like, hey, um, I I need to buy food for my family. I need to buy a new car. And let's say it's a car. Your guardian would say, well, I will buy the car for you. I'm going to go to this lot. I'm going to spend $500 to get you a new car, but I will sell it to you for $1,500. Oh, my God. That's infuriating. Okay. And this includes veterans of World War I. Very similar to our boy from last week. I'm so mad. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So if if that's got you hot under the collar, just wait. There's more. Oh. <laughs> but wait, there's more for $9.99. Mm -hmm. So during the 1920s, the oil rich Osage Indians in Oklahoma keep mysteriously dying. And it's during that period that it's come to be called the reign of terror. One report from the FBI believes that hundreds and hundreds were murdered. In a nation where indigenous people faced rampant discrimination, tribal leaders struggled to find answers or justice. And ultimately, uh, the brand new Bureau of Investigation, or the Bureau of Investigation, which would become the Federal Bureau of Investigation, under its newly appointed director, J. Edgar Hoover, took the case and uncovered a shocking conspiracy. A shocking conspiracy? Oh, Never. No, no. We haven't even gotten to the conspiracy part yet. Oh, my. You say that, and I'm like, girl, just, just you wait. <laughs> okay, so one by one in the early 1920s, Molly Burkhart's family members kept turning up dead. Her sister Anna had been discovered in a ravine in May of 1921 with a bullet wound to the back of her head. Following the shooting of a cousin less than two years later, Molly's sister Rita and her husband were killed in an explosion that reduced their house to kindling. And Mo so Molly suspected that poisoning was to blame for an unexpected ailment that killed her mother. And in retrospect, even the wasting illness that had killed her third sister, Minnie, in 1918 seemed suspicious. Okay. So we've got a bunch of people who've died, a bunch of different MOs. And it wasn't just Molly's family that was being methodically killed on the Osage Nation Reservation during that decade. There's more than two dozen Osage tribe members that had been shot, stabbed, beaten, and bombed in what is one of the bloodiest crime sprees in American history. And this doesn't include the suspected poisonings or those who die of 
wasting disease or that were uninvestigated suicides. Wow. Okay. And just just so I have some clarification, what year was oil found there? 1921. And her sister died in 1918, you said? 1918. Well, was it 1921? Okay. Now that I say that, I'm... It was in that area. Let me Google. I feel like I feel like you said 1921. That's why I asked because well, I was like 1918 is a couple years before 1921. Okay, so I was wrong. Um, it was 1897 that the first oil well was put in. Okay. Okay. So okay. that that was. Thank you for for asking for clarification. So it had fully ramped up by that point. Once it by, okay, really I got. got then it was okay i understand the chain of events yeah so as soon as these osages start becoming incredibly wealthy guardianships are put on all of them and then you know people start dying so weird incredibly investigators who probe the case too deeply also have a propensity for turning up dead surprise yeah, I'm not even a little bit, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, one attorney with information on the case is thrown off of a speeding train. That's natural. Yeah, that happens. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the CDC talks about that all the time. Yeah, you hear about it all the time. Well, if you live in Florida, you hear about it all the time. Nowhere else. <laughs> you know what? I This checks. Um, there's the body of... Barney McBride, who's a wealthy white oilman, he agrees to go to Washington, D.C. to ask federal authorities to investigate the murders because he's just trying to help. Like he there's very few white people who are like literal actual friends, even though they might all call themselves that. Well, um, he's found stripped, beaten and stabbed more than 20 times in a Maryland culvert that The Washington Post called the most brutal in the crime annals in the district. And to be considered the most brutal in D.C., I feel like is rather telling. I would really think especially then in that time, too. I I don't know if it's ever been like the quiet streets of D.C. (laughs) I mean, maybe back in Washington's day, you know, when it was just farmland. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this this continues to just go downhill. And the journalist and author... David Grant, who detailed all of this in his beautiful book that in 2017, which is the same as the movie, The Flowers of the Killer Moon. Um, it's now in theaters because it was directed by Martin Scorsese. And he says that like, or it's one of the things is that the reservation was soaked in blood because it was a wash in oil, which is a beautifully written line. Yeah, And it just, it talks about how these people who are driven from their lands, they, they do everything they can to get to this rocky, barren reservation that promised to yield very little except for their desire to be left alone. And that's until the discovery of one of the largest oil deposits in the United States. And that checks. Oil barons such as J. Paul Getty, Henry Seclair, and Frank Phillips. You, I mean, you know all of these people. You don't. I'm being a smartass. Uh, paid grand sums. I personally know Mr. Getty, okay? Congratulations. <laughs> um, but they all end up paying like incredible sums 
for these leases and these outdoor auctions. And the auctions are held under what is this, this massive elm tree that's called the million dollar elm. And when the weather was beautiful, they would, they would have this outdoor auction and people would be pouring over these maps to see what allotments they want to try to go for to, to drill. And each of the members, you know, would receive these, these royalty payments on their head rights. And as the years progressed, so did the digits on their checks. So it started in 19, 1897. And so it started by growing into the hundreds and then the thousands. And then in 1923 alone, the 2000 tribe members collectively received $30 million. Like individual, like the whole tribe. So the like, whole okay. tribe. So 2000, <laughs> 2000 people split up 30 million. And just to give you an idea in today's money, that's $400 million. Okay. So this was not chump change. Now we see why the U.S. felt the need to institute guardianships, like why this supplanted, I don't know, national security, public infrastructure, investing in schools. Well, I mean, the dollar dollar bill. I Yeah, I mean, there's so many other things I would like them to legislate versus. I mean, I agree with the you. wealth of 2000 people. Yeah. Like we could probably leave them alone. They're just fine. Literally. Literally. Um, the Osage, because of this, they become the richest people per capita in the world. Okay. They live in mansions. They have chauffeured cars. They have servants, many of whom are white. And these images belie the longstanding stereotypes that Native Americans had since they could trace their first contact with whites. And it just really flipped everything we knew about them completely on their heads. Like in the book, it was like, if the average family had one car, the Osage family had 11. Okay. Like it was just an obscene amount of wealth, right? I mean, and it all makes sense, right? I mean, you have the money. If you're a billionaire today, you don't have one car limited to one. You know what I mean? I find it interesting that they were able to get mansions and chauffeured drivers and white staff and still have a guardianship. That's wild to me. Yeah, it's it's really like. It just shows just how obscene the whole system is. Yeah, like I want to know what the house of the guardian look like. I mean, if they're skimming off the top, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, it's probably not as luxurious or decadent, but it's probably not a shack. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. These families were the more prominent families in the community to begin with. So they were already doing well, but now they're able to to take an addition to. Right. That's crazy. Good on them. Good on them. The Osage, not the whites, right? Yes, the Osage. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I had a feeling that's where we were going, but I just, I just want to double down on that. Um, yes. <laughs> so the problem with all this great wealth is that it lured people who are just incredibly awful people, the desperados, the bootleggers, the criminals. And the, the bootleggers, because this is during Prohibition, they were pretty insidious. So in the book, it talks about how... Um, one of the undercover FBI agents goes to a bootlegger and the bootlegger 
has all of this whiskey to sell, but he's like, oh yeah, don't, don't buy the, the stuff over there. That's, that's been basically laced with poison. That's what we sell to the Indians. You want the actual good whiskey over here. I mean, it is outrageous, outrageous at every step. That's incredibly frustrating. I mean, I know that's just not enough to say, but the, especially during Prohibition when alcohol was already like the worst it could be as far as uh, sanitary and health of oh, people, yeah. you know, like, let's just make it worse. Yeah. Uh, okay. Sorry. I'm mad. No, okay. I mean, <laughs> and like another thing I didn't put in my story, but they talked about how when each of Molly Burkhart's family members passed away, the funeral arrangements were astronomically marked up. Well, of course. Like if you being a white person, you know, for the full kit and caboodle, it would cost you six grand. It would cost an Osage member 80. I believe it. And it it's just really capitalizing on something very dark and insidious. And it, I, I just, it, it really bugs me deep down in my soul. Um, so this is just, these Osage Indians are, have become so rich that people felt that something had to be, be done about it. Like, you just have to do something about it. You can't let them be better than you. And that was reported in Harper's Monthly, which that is how widespread the sentiment was. So prejudice provoked scapegoating the Osage and their wealth. And that's when the U.S. Congress steps in to hold hearings about what the country should do in response. Oh, yes. Let's hold some hearings. I love a good hearing. Yeah. And that's when lawmakers appoint the white guardianships. And this system was so rooted in racism and done under the pretense of enlightenment that the Osage needed protection. And even worse, it led to this entire criminal enterprise that had been sanctioned by the U.S. government. The, Os the people who were appointed as guardians forced them to purchase goods at inflated prices and received kickbacks by directing them to do business with certain stores and banks. And in some cases, the guardians dropped the pretenses and simply stole the money. Well, I mean, if you're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one government study says at least $8 million was sold or stolen. Um, an exasperated Osage member says they're scalping our souls out here. And the, the systematic embezzlement was referred to as, quote, Indian business by white settlers on the Osage reservation. But even this was. wasn't lucrative enough. There had to be a better way to get more money. Of course. And since the head rights could only be inherited, there was a loophole that allowed calculated, cold-blooded jerks to gain the inheritance of tribe members by killing them. And some of them married their marks to legally become the next of kin before murdering their spouses. I was going to ask, was it by marriage? Because that is the only way that the loophole would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That checks. So as the body count rose in the early 1920s, the Osage saw no action from local and state law enforcement. 
there was a tremendous amount of corruption in the county and the power structure was able to buy off lawmen. And in some cases, the lawmen directly were complicit or they just simply turned a blind eye. And so this is when tribal representatives sent, or that's when the tribe sent representatives to Washington where they appealed for help from President Calvin Coolidge. And then from the directly new, relatively new Bureau of Investigation, and they were seeking some high-profile success to erase the Bureau's stained reputation from the Teapot Dome scandal, which was a huge oil scandal that affected, um, I think that was Coolridge. Anyhow, but the Teapot Dome scandal has was like a massive, huge scandal that went all the way up to the top of the government. And the newly appointed director, J. Edgar Hoover, is send, he then sends some investigators to Oklahoma. And okay, Hoover was an interim bureaucrat that was put put in, and so he's seeking to really bolster his own reputation so that he can hold on to that role and right. then start amassing more and more power. That checks. Yeah, and he. This is about the time where he starts filling the bureau with these accountant-looking investigators. You know, where they all have the dark suits and they mm-hmm. all have I was just gonna say the suit and tie and the, the government yeah. men, right? Yeah. But before then it was cobbled together, you know, people from all over. Like one of the main investigators on this case is um a man, Tom White, who is a former Texas Ranger and has done a, a ton of stuff, but he wears a cowboy hat. He's six three. He, you know, like he was like the he second... is Walker, Texas Ranger. Exactly. Like <laughs> his daddy was a Texas lawman. He is a Texas lawman. And then he goes to the FBI. Um, And it was it's just kind of insane when you think about, you know, because for him, he's like, I need to bring people who look like they belong so they can bet in the community because if they look like a bunch of G-men. Ain't nobody going to talk to him. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> but strangely. Yeah. And like Mm. Hoover's whole thing was he wanted everybody to be copy paste. Like he wanted you to be able to go from the Matrix. Yeah. The Atlanta field (laughs) office to the Portland field office to the Oklahoma. Like he wanted them interchangeable. And White was like, you can't do that. These people need to be familiar with the territory. That's also checks. But anyhow, White gets his way. So he hands the case over and the former Texas Ranger puts together this undercover team that includes literally or likely the only Native American agent they had. Okay. And it's incredible just hearing more about him, but I have to like try to pull in the reins of this. So this podcast isn't five years long. They work (laughs) quickly and methodically and white pursued a case when many believed that the people they were pursuing were untouchable because either white people and the victims were Native American. So Okay. You know, the public sentiment was, well, this looks like a victimless crime. Oh, of course. It's like copying something off the TV. Yeah, it's just like that. Just it's like a making a, a, a bad recording on your VHS. <laughs> so White's able to crack the murders of Burkhart's family, Molly Burkhart. Um, and she he uncovers this insidious con- conspiracy that's promoted by a prominent cattle baron named william hale and why is it always the cattle baron i mean it couldn't be because william's middle name is 
literally king and he referred to himself as the king of osage hills always it is always the cattle bear <laughs> you, you, <laughs> i know so hale positions himself as a benevolent benevolent community leader and generous friend of the indians and he's that is said over and over in the book of course because that's what the baron king says yep so Hale encourages his nephew, Ernest Burkhart, to marry Molly and then methodically arranges to have her kin murdered. Of course, of course. And the order in which they go is important because uh, it's okay. first Molly's sister. So her head rights go to the mom. Like the sister to, without To kids. Molly's mom? Yeah, to Molly's mom. Okay. And then the second sister gets shot and those okay. rights revert back to the mom. Okay. And then the younger sister's house explodes. And so those rights revert to mom and then mom dies. I'm going to assume dad's already dead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, he died. Well, I think well before even the oil came. Gotcha. And so mom inherits everything from the kids and then mom dies. And so all the wealth is funneled to Molly Burkhart and her white husband and nephew of the cattle baron. I find it interesting that she would she would think that there were suspicious circumstances surrounding the deaths of her family and still married a white man. Well, she married the white man and then these things started happening. And oh, I guess what's true. worse yeah, that's is true. when okay. the sister ends up. So the first sister dies of wasting disease and everyone goes, oh, that's so sad. She was so healthy. And then she just died, like got sick and like stayed sick and died. And they're like, oh, it's wasting disease, whatever the hell wasting disease is. And then the second sister shot. And the investigation is so poorly handled they lose the bullet that should have been trapped in the sister's skull at some point they lose the skull um oh wow yeah okay. um and as all this is happening her uncle-in-law william hale he's like i'm going to hire investigators to look in on this because we don't really have local and state authorities who are going to step in. So I, I'll hire a PI and I'll put out a reward and we'll get this taken care of. And so she thinks that her family married family is going to support her during this. That's a, will be a fair assumption to make if he's saying these things and actually hiring an investigator. Now he's telling the investigator basically don't work too hard, but when you see these steps happening, you assume these things are happening. You know, you assume yeah. this is this is going the right direction. And you don't assume that the man who shares your bed and loves you is a part of it. Yeah. Ugh. Like at one point, her sister and brother-in-law hear people sneaking around their house at night. So they move into the neighborhood as Molly Burkhart. And within like a very short period of time, um, the brother and sister-in-law, Bob, is it Bob? I think it's Bob and Rita. Their house uh, blows up. That's insane. Like blows up to the point where they wake up to the explosion. Molly looks out the window and realizes that that's the direction of her sister's house. 
what's that even terrible. Oh my gosh. It is, yeah, it is okay. so awful. And one of the most heartbreaking parts of the book was when Burkhart's grandchild talked about the bombing ordeal. Um, he had said that Hale and Burkhart, they worked together to orchestrate bombing Bill, Bill and Rita Smith's house. That's what it was. And the night of the bombing, Molly and her kids, so Burkhart's wife and children were planning on visiting and spending the night. But the son, Cowboy, that's his nickname, uh, he has an earache and he doesn't go. And so Cowboy grows up wrestling with the knowledge that his dad tried to kill him. I'm, yeah, <laughs> that's that's a hard thing to think on. Right. And how can you how can you play along for so long that you have children? So a man and a woman love each other very much. And <laughs> yeah, no, I get how it's done. What what I'm what I I mean, how duplicitous you have to be. Yeah. To like, make babies and then let your babies go to where Yes. I mean you... Yeah, okay. I'm just gonna be quiet now. Carry on. I mean, it is a love of money that supersedes everything else. It makes me so mad. And I'm... what is so incredibly heartbreaking is when you look at. OK, I'm, I'm going to put a pin in that. Um, remind me to tell you about the fallout between Molly Burkhart and the tribe, because I, I got to circle back to this, but I got to hit a couple other points before I do. Um Beyond the Burkhart case, in which Molly and the kids end up being the only surviving members of her entire fucking family, this and this garners national attention. Many of the Osage killings remain unsolved, and Hoover's in a rush to close the case and really closes the case prematurely. The Bureau doesn't reveal the deeper, darker conspiracy, and as a result, many outside of that were able to escape justice. So in the book, Grand picks up the case and reveals how there was a wider conspiracy of the murders, which numbered in the hundreds. And it was really a culture of killing and a culture of complicity in these murders. And what makes the crime so sinister and disturbing, he says, is that it's a clash of two civilizations and the emergence of modern law enforcement and how important it is to, the, to be a country of laws. Unlike state and local investigators, Hoover agents did provide the Osage with some relief from their reign of terror, but it also came with a bill of $20,000 for their services, where the Osage were expected to pay for the pleasure of having this case solved. Now, I'm not sure what makes me matter. I, I don't think you have to limit yourself to just one. This can be, just be an entire bucket of anger. It it. It really is, because do we not live in a country where that is something that we are supposed to be guaranteed? Yeah. Like, what are the tax dollars for? Yeah. If to do this, I also get a $20,000 bill. Yeah, that's infuriating. And I'm going to assume the $20,000 in 1925 to today is astronomical. Well, let me look up at the inflation calculator, because that is a number I didn't I didn't do. Teresa didn't do an inflation calculation? I had the opportunity and I didn't see it. What is wrong with me? I say because I did the math on my story. <laughs> you know what? I have thoughts. 
uh, am I number one in your book? <laughs> uh, that is a bill of $351,758.86. That checks. Yeah, for justice. Yeah, so between the years... And I'm of... sure there are very already being taxed to hell and back. Oh, why like, not? Yeah, why I'm not? sure they are. This was before we had the billionaires who figured out how to get out of paying taxes. Ah, special. Okay, sorry. So, I didn't mean to interrupt. between the years of 1907 and 1923, 605 Osage died. So that would put their death rates at 19 per a thousand people, and the national death rates for today are 8.5 per a thousand. Oh, and these numbers, um, they only reflect people who were born before 1907, because those are the people present on the scrolls. So any Osage born after 1907 isn't listed in the numbers I just included above. Oh, okay. So, you know, they're dying at 1.5 times higher rates than the average, but it's cool. It's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. Okay. That checks. Yeah. It's yeah. Don't spend your money. It's fine. Mm -hmm. But I do have a picture of um, Molly and her two sisters that I want to So does Molly survive? Molly survives. Molly survives. Okay. And I will go back to the, um, okay. So this is Molly and these are her two sisters. So because Molly married the notorious killer amongst them, she lost her entire family. And during the trial and after the trial, her family was more or less ostracized by the tribe who had a hard time believing that she wasn't involved. Like, how are you married to the one who wiped out so many of us? Yeah, I mean, that's a valid question. I mean, she's obviously innocent, but it's a valid question that people would have. Yeah. That's rough. But that is the story of the Osage murders as focused on Molly Burkhart and her family. Oh, and so, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, you know, people likely died in a result of this reign of terror, but the official toll is 24. Oh, okay. Um, And it's crazy to know that there were more women out there with similar stories. Yeah. There has to be. In one Osage historian said they cannot find a single family who didn't lose at least one person. Yeah, I would. Yeah, okay. I'm just going to growl about it. I know, I know. And it is. So then I hear like Scorsese has produced this or directed this movie about this entire story. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is incredible. I. I need to go see it. I need to make sure everybody else goes sees it um, because it's a story that has lived rent-free in my brain since I first put it there. And <laughs> like and I consumed the entire book a second time this weekend. That's awesome. <laughs> I consumed it. I love consuming books. It's yeah. my favorite. Oh my. Ugh. Well, my story is definitely a palate cleanser. See, I told you, um, I told you we'd need it. Do we have time for it? I think we do. Okay. Like, unless you uh, say, like, 
I, let me pull out my tome of notes. <laughs> no, I have a tome of notes, but um, it it's not it's they're not wild it, as far as like um, yeah, it's it's fine. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you the story of the well. First of all, I should say that this week's story is brought to you by my husband, um, who knows. I don't know if I, I don't, I'm unsure if I've shared with you, but I'm a huge fan of all things French. Did, I, did you know that? I think, I think you knew that. High fashion, French yeah. things. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so. Taquitos. <laughs> that's not French, but. Well, I'm just taquitos. thinking about just, just things that you, that you are a connoisseur of things that you I, deeply. I, and Pepsi. I, taquitos and Pepsi. I think that's the full circle. It really is. Um, yeah, it, it truly is. Um, so he, he has this goal in life to make sure that he always hits me with fun French facts or, uh, you know, little stories, delightful little ditties, if you will. And he hit me with this one the other day and I was like, I have, I have to tell, <laughs> tell her the story right now. Um, so this is going to be the Bakers and Waiters strike of 1907. The right to a day off and a mustache. Can I just say <laughs> that 1907 is a very prominent 1907 is a very prominent year in my story too, so this is very entertaining to I me. Know. When you said that I was like, "Shut up, Angie. Shut up, Angie." <laughs> so just know that in 1907 on the other side of the world, waiters were were going to bat for the right to wear a mustache. You know, as somebody um, who just removed mine, I can get behind these efforts. <laughs> so one of my um, sources is Atlas Obscura, which, believe it or not, came straight from my husband, who found the article there first. Uh, a book called Concerning Beards, Facial Hair, and Health and Practice in England in 1650 to 1900 by Dr. Alan Whitney. And probably my favorite source is the gentlemensjournal.com, <laughs> an article called A Brief Bristling History of the Mustache. And in order to tell you the history, or the story rather, of the, the right to wear a mustache, I have to tell you the history of facial hair because it's just not the same without it. <laughs> I, I feel like the history of facial hair is it exists. It does, but the mustache in particular has a bit of a story okay. did you know I'm, I'm just gonna start you off with some fun facts did you know that if you have a mustache you inadvertently touch it over 700 times a day yeah i had a feeling like i mean like i am constantly searching the mole for you know phantom hairs and then i'm also like so i am i am like always checking, yeah so imagine you know? if there were actually hair there right? there is actually <laughs> hair there and i am a scout well, it's beautiful hair. You don't you don't need to worry about it. Luxurious. Um, it's luxurious. There is also a World Beard and Mustache Championship. Oh, I knew that. I did not, and I was so delighted to learn that. I'm sad I didn't already know that. Um, and according to the Gentleman's Journal, the word mustache starts in Greece as a mass tax. Then it was stolen, the word itself was stolen by the Scottish and turned into mistacks, meaning jaws, mouth, or lips. The medieval Greeks, playing no games about it, took the word back and we got then the new word of 
mustachian, which thank God for the Italian and the word mustachio because they took over with that. And then the French combed it into submission, giving us what we now know today as the mustache. The final definition of the term mustache is the hair that grows on the upper lip of a man. Not a woman, just a man. I have seen women with some damn impressed, impressive mustaches. I feel like we need to degender that one. I, you know, I was going to say this feels sexist. I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, again, these these women were eye catching. I will give them that. Um, striking, if you will. Definitely striking. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine literally striking should you mention the mustache. Okay, well, the general, the gentleman's journal goes on to say, quote, the origins of the actual adornment are unfortunately not so clear. We know that some Egyptian statue shows pharaohs sporting the stash um the gallant knights of the dark ages also had armor custom made to accommodate their mustaches how Um, massive would your stash (laughs) need to be that you need to shape your helmet differently well i will show you in just a few minutes um so the the helmets were created that would rustle the thick flowing facial hair and we're also aware that the hungarian hussar cavalry units of the 18th century coupled their huge mustaches with outlandish uniforms in a bid to strike fear into the hearts of their bald-faced enemies. <laughs> wow. I know. Isn't that glorious? Um, so typically... These have mustaches. They're older than us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was my attempt at imitating a prepubescent boy. You did good. You did great. Thank you. I, yeah. I do what I can. <laughs> By the 18th century, if you saw a mustache, it was probably worn by a soldier, and they were commonly used to tell the difference between military men and your good old civilian. Um, However, mustaches would get their real glory in the 19th century when the British Rajah was colonizing away. Indians believed um, Indian from India. From from the Asia continent. Yes. Okay. Believed that a man's facial hair is a sign of his innate virility. And so they were growing out their mustaches to, quote, assert their masculinity, which, as you can imagine, or at least I did, the uh, this would be the beginning of the hair farming wars. Bigger, bigger was better. Hair, hair farming? <laughs> yeah, hair farming. It's, uh, it's a phrase for lots of hair. Okay, because I was thinking, like, uh did it i mean my i automatically went to capitalism so like are we <laughs> harvesting and then selling no we're just growing mass just amounts growing. of hair okay yeah, just so growing this is the equivalent of hubs with the literal jade roller and particular products that he rolls into his face regions to stimulate hair growth, growth. yeah yeah mm-hmm. I should really quit throwing his self-care <laughs> under the bus because... Do you want to delete that part? I mean, <laughs> no. I will let him call me out and then I will know that he listens. Okay. Right, I don't right. think that he does. This will be my test. <laughs> so the Gentleman's Journal has this to say about the bigger, better mustache. Quote, 
The British Army, many of whom were buying into the stiff, clean-shaven, upper-lipped sensibilities of the time, were having difficulty maintaining any order within the Indian troops, who considered them less than real men, given their disastrous lack of a mustache. Backed into a corner, the Brits fought back and took control with similarly big bristlers and brought the style back to Blightly with them when they returned home. The mustache returned from the Empire, a conquering hairy hero. <laughs> so you say that, and now I'm wondering, I have this image in my brain of a cartoon of a British man with an incredibly thick red mustache. And I'm really hoping that you're conjuring the same image so that I know this isn't a fever dream and likely some no, actual it's very cartoon. Real. It's it, it might actually be a cartoon. Um, I that sounds familiar to me. I'm thinking he's kind of a plump fellow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now we're gonna have to find the guy because he's actually, not in my picture. You know, I'm also like I'm probably cobbling together several images because isn't the walrus from the original Alice in Wonderland? <gasps> doesn't he also you, have the mustache and i think he has does a thick british accent i think he does and it would be par for the alice in wonderland story it would be perfect the time okay. all of it great yeah. so perfect yeah. okay cool okay carry on so there was a short time in world war one when facial hair was not all that popular because you couldn't fit it into a gas mask i could see that being a bit you know i like thing. living mm-hmm yeah um, but once the Roaring Twenties started rolling, the stashes started rocking it again. Once World War II was in swing, the British, quote, triumphed in more ways than one with our rakish fighter pilots becoming known for both their bravery and their silky, sweepingly huge handlebars. This story makes me so happy. <laughs> I mean, this is exactly the palate cleanser we needed. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, and since then, they've never really fallen out of favor. I mean, not with the likes of men like Tom Selleck, Sam Elliott, Pedro Pascal, like the mustache. The is. best. Okay. So Grace and Frankie had the best Sam Elliott quote. Okay. Hit me. Where Jane Fonda referring to Sam Elliott says, there are five men who can pull off that mustache and he's three of them. I mean, it's, that's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> That is so accurate. Would you like to see a couple of images of the mustaches from World War II? Because they're glorious. World War II or one? Uh, World War II. In World War oh, that's I, right. mustaches World War were not I, they worn. Were, they were the, the gas mask issues. Yes, I'm, I'm here fact. for it. Okay. Allow me to, uh, <laughs> to share this with you because they're phenomenal. <laughs> Okay, so Angie has found an image of, I mean, so I, while some would refer to it as handlebars, I would prefer to them as airplane wings. Yep. There is a, <laughs> I would assume general, there is hardly an unmetalled portion on his entire visage from shoulders to legs. I mean, he is covered in ribbons. I and think he might actually be a Japanese general. Which makes I'm, it even funner. I don't know. But either way, he's got a white handlebar mustache that goes down to his mutton chops and <laughs> extends, I'm not kidding, a foot and a half on either side. <laughs> he's glorious. But he does have 
ambiguous ethnicity. If I remember right, the page that I took this from mentioned him being a Japanese command uh, general of sorts. Um, I don't remember his name, though. I was just so in love with his mustache that I had to share. And then you see the the happy American gentleman. Oh, he's he's either American or British, but I think this one was this one was American. With okay, pipe. so either way, there's a European much smaller man. He's in a, uh, I'd say fur coat, uh, but very short fur coat, not like the very long, luxurious mink. It's a, a bomber's scarf. pilot coat. Oh, is that what that is? Okay. Yeah. Um, he's literally got a corn cob pipe. Um, he looks kind of like a hipster with his haircut. Like he could be making <laughs> your coffee behind the counter at an upscale craft place. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. Brilliant teeth. He his mustache is what you would assume is like the hipster mustache with, you know, the nice sweep, but it goes only up to the corners of his smile, which is quite <laughs> dapper. Isn't he? All right. So then for my final picture, because this guy. Okay, you see this okay. guy? So Okay. She's now showing me a picture of a man who looks like he's wearing like a flight jacket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's in um, his flight suit. Yeah, flight suit. And he's got like the airman um, hat on, you know, so it's I don't know how else to describe what that is. He's it's got the, um, like the it's not the beret, but I always forget what this one's called. Yeah, the I don't know. More, I don't know. But it's, it's a an very, airman's hat. Yeah, it's an, yeah, it's an airman's hat. Um, he has honestly impressive forearm hair that is because he has <laughs> his finger up in the camera like, don't you dare. Um, but his mustache is that very thick 60s style like tom Selleck, exactly but that's not tom Selleck. no it's not tom Selleck. but he reminds me of tom Selleck. you're not wrong i see where you're getting that so this man and that mustache is against regulation so this man is called robin olds and he is a bit of a legend he uses his mustache for um some light rebellion if you will um Olds was known for his extravagantly waxed and very non-regulation handlebar mustache. He sported it in Vietnam. And um, the airman... So there was a a common superstition... Excuse me if I could say the word. Among airmen, there was a superstition that like you needed to grow a bulletproof mustache is what they called the handlebar mustache that Mr. Olds you saw had. Yeah. However, he uses his as, quote, a gesture of defiance. He says the kids on base, they loved it. Everybody grew a mustache. Um, He started growing his in the wake of a a successful operation called Operation Bolo, and he let it grow beyond regulation length, Uh, kind of because, quote, it was the middle finger I couldn't raise in the PR photos. The mustache became my silent last word in the verbal battles with higher headquarters on rules targets and fighting the war. I love this man. So at my grandfather's memorial, I learned of something he did to break regulation and to be out of uniform. And it's actually how he met his best friend. That's awesome. So he's seated for some kind of briefing with everybody else in his group unit. unit. Um, And the commanding officer, because he's sitting cross-legged and they had to wear the specific socks and Gramps was sitting cross-legged. So his pant leg rose up and 
his commanding officer said, Rick, he's like, are are you wearing Argyle socks that don't even match? <laughs> and my grandfather oh, looks stopped. Down, he looks down and looks at his socks and he goes, well, would you know it? I have a pair that look just like this at home. <laughs> and that's when the guy who would be his best friend goes, yeah, I should be friends with that man. I, I mean, I, you know, to be that <laughs> much of a smart ass to be like, oh, they don't match. Oh, there's a I've got a matching pair at home. <laughs> They're there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that guy. How fun. That uh, is great. So funny enough, he is the legend behind Mustache March. It's in which aircrew, aircraft maintainers, and other airmen worldwide show solidarity by a symbolic, albeit, quote, good-natured protest for one month against the Air Force facial hair regulations. He's the reason that exists. You get Mustache March because of that man. And I could go on and on and on and on and on about this guy, but I I actually told you all of that so I could tell you about the great French mustache strike of 1907. <laughs> <laughs> this was all Lita? Yep. Angie, you bury the lead every single time. It's so much fun. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about straws just so I can get to bourbon. It's true. And now I'm going to tell you about mustaches so I can tell you about a waiter strike. <laughs> So at 6.30 p.m. on April 17th in 1907, waiters all over Paris stopped serving, shut up shop, collected their pay, and went home. The customers were, they were needless to say, befuddled, confused, if you will. They, the waiters were later mocked the following day in the press because striking is something a miner or a railroad worker would do, but not a waiter. But by this point, several other service-type industry workers were on board, such as bakery workers, butcher boys, public servants, and school teachers, and they wanted rights. I mean, that like that's that's what it was all about. Um, <laughs> Atlas Obscura has a great comment, sort of bringing it all around, saying, "Quote: Around the city at the time, high-end waiters were on strike to demand better pay, more time off, and the right to grow a mustache." The bristly adornments had been virtually ubiquitous among Frenchmen for decades, though many waiters, domestic servants, and priests were not allowed to have them. They were sentenced to forced shaving. Wait a minute. What do we want? Wages. When do we want it? Mustaches. What? <laughs> yeah. We also want yeah. yeah, that's that. Yeah, you're not you're not far from the truth here. Um, it's estimated that when they walked off the job, so did 25,000 francs a day. I mean, in revenue. Checks. So five francs was the equivalent of a dollar back in 1907. Um, in U.S. dollars today, that's roughly eight hundred and eighteen thousand dollars a day. So it's not people. Change. Yeah, people have a reason to figure figure this out. Um, my favorite part of the whole story, though, is that a newspaper called the. The Memorial de la Lore said, quote, women are quite determined to starve with their children rather than see the whiskers of their husbands still fall under the razor. And if that doesn't tell you how much a woman loves facial hair, I don't know what else will. <laughs> um, honey, I don't I don't agree with this reporter. I like eating. I like our children <laughs> breathing. Please so, and thank you. <laughs> I like them above ground. Just 
Thank you. <laughs> just, just a riser. I mean, I'm just, I'm just asking for us to continue living. I would like bread this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know waiters... if I agree with that, but that that does seem a bit hyperbolic. Anyhow, carry on. Yeah, there you have it. Um, the waiters who stayed on and continued working, they were not treated well and were most definitely berated by the strikers who wanted them, you know, on the picket line with them. Um, the police had to respond by moving all of the clean-shaven men and about a dozen super confused American tourists who had no clue what was going on. And I just think that's so American and so funny. Like, we're here for a day in Paris. We don't know why we're being thrown out. <laughs> but I mean, here we are. <laughs> it doesn't matter the day, the time, the reason. There's always going to be confused tourists wandering around the city. <laughs> This particular time, they just happened to be uh, shuffled in with a group of clean-shaven men who didn't want to not work that day. <laughs> yeah. So the demand to wear facial hair was different from waiter to waiter, but it seems that it was more about the injustice of the time. Um, Alice Obscura and my other sources go on to talk about the history of the mustache and its status symbol. Um, basically, it's a status; it's a symbol of privilege. And even points out that by the middle of the 19th century, most French soldiers had to wear mustaches. Some in the lower ranks. Yeah, they were required to. Um, Though in the lower ranks to reinforce the military hierarchy, the lower ranks weren't allowed to. But the requirement was so strict that some soldiers who couldn't grow facial hair naturally had to stick on fakes. You hear is, of like this is France <laughs> previous wars of like women disguising their gender to join the war. I think this would cause or a lot more people to be visibly non-gender conforming if they had the mustache <laughs> requirement. Or there'd be more people just growing out their armpit hair and pasting it to their upper lip. <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever. You do you. Um so around the time that the French military has got this hierarchy of mustache wearing is also when the first modern restaurants are rising up around Paris. So these establishments, they're clearly primarily for the wealthy and they wanted to recreate that whole experience of dining all Downton Abbey, you know, where you have your butlers uh-huh. and your valets and all that good stuff. So for them, the experience was also about food, but more about the experience. Waiters had to retain the appearance of domestic valets, valets, whatever, who were forbidden to wear mustaches as a sign of their rank. Diners were, quote, paying to humiliate people in a most institutional way, says historian Gil Milhaley, who has published extensively on the subject of French masculinity. The clientele paid for an experience, and the experience was to be the master. So it goes without saying that this was a way for the wealthy to hold on to their status after the expansion and industrial revolution gives way for more people of the working class to have access to the same luxuries that only the upper class formerly had, right? Right. Um, But saying that made me think... Not all upper-class men served in the military, but they would wear mustaches. So I wondered if, even if they didn't serve, were they given a hard time for sporting the look? Or was it very much like, a, oh, well, you're at the upper echelon, you're the one percenter, so who cares? You can have the mustache, it's just part of your status symbol. I'm unclear on that. 
but there you have it. So all that to say, um, while the waiters did have a union, it is possible that some of their grievances, like having a day off and better pay, were settled with the individual employer. But it is also believed that it could have been thousands of the working class walking off the job during this time. Waiters just happened to be the forefront. Either uh, way, though, what a... Right? Opponents, and I imagine this this little bit I'm going to read to you, I imagine this to come out of the mouth of those snooty upper ladies. Oh, Thomas, you know, those type. The Dowager Countess from Downton yes. Abbey. I'm, I'm, yes. Maggie Smith is reading the following. My God, I love that woman. Still, other others argued against the movement due to hygienic concerns, which according to Oldstone and Moore, excuse me, Oldstone Moore, were beginning to appear more frequently. Will they clean rather frequently their mustaches? Asked in the Le Journal on April 22nd. From their nostrils to our drinks, the paper warned bacteria wouldn't need to travel far to our, quote, stomachs, kidneys, and most delicate organ parts. So Plus, what are they expecting these mustaches to do? Like just their sheer <laughs> presence? Like their sheer presence is going to get you sick. Mm-hmm. And yeah. their husband's mustaches don't? I'm just I'm... I literally said the same thing when I was reading these reading through this. Um the article also argues that quote, the hair appendix is not so convenient. It complicates life. Watching a mustache man eat, certainly a common sight in the day, in the day's restaurants, regardless of the appearance of the wait staff, is quote repugnant. Repugnant. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna have to let Hubs know that his mustache is repugnant. Only when he eats. Otherwise, it is a symbol of his status in life. Although I will say, speaking of only when he eats, he is not necessarily a fan of sandwiches because his he ends up eating his hair. Okay. And I'm like, this this checks. I, I understand that. Okay. We just cut it off right there. Like, Ian starts above his lips so that he can eat. <laughs> I, you know, I haven't gotten into that with him. I've just like, all right, you know, if that's if that's the way you wear your body and that one food thing bothers you, okay. There you go. Um, so the waiters' defendants saw this as a way to show their freedom, stating that they are free men with no king and no master, and should most definitely be able to wear the stash. Interestingly enough, though, there was already a bill in Parliament banning mustache bans. <laughs> <laughs> by a the time it all started uh, yep by the time it all started but the bill failed which wouldn't matter because by may they won the right to properly wear their stash probably at the expense of other demands but the mustache was the big one and i just think that is delightful <laughs> look we don't get any days off and our pay is actually a dollar lower but we get a mustache but... So I would like to end this statement that was made by the historian Gil Mahali. Um, it was very painful for those who were forced to shave, he says. The mustache bands were especially demoralizing for veterans who had to abandon proud symbols of their service just to qualify for certain jobs. To be denied the mustache was to be demeaned, infant infantilized, emasculated, even depatriated in front of their families, neighbors, and friends. Nothing paints a clearer picture of this than Guy de 
I'm going to jack this up. I have said it to myself a hundred times. Guy de Mousse-Ponce, 1883, short story called The Mustache, in which a woman named Jean mourns the mustache her husband had to shave in order to take on a female role in a play. Quote, a man without a mustache is no longer a man, she laments. Perhaps worse, he lacks the insignia of our national character. So, wait a minute. She <laughs> wanted him to play a woman with the mustache? Is that what I'm understanding? Like, because that seems <laughs> yeah. to be the alternative. That is the alternative. I think she was just more upset that the mustache was gone. Um, So, yeah, there's <laughs> there's there's the story of... Uh, the mustache rebellion and the history of the mustache in short sweet palate cleansing way <laughs> i i deeply respect your contributions to this podcast <laughs> i literally was like hold on you mean to tell me a whole group of waiters this this sounds so french let's do it okay <laughs> like if we're not going to be able to wear the mustache that you wear, then we're just not going to serve you. Mm. I mean, to be fair, I'm surprised that, you know, they ever got waiters with that rule. I mean, yeah, I guess that's true when you think about it. But at the same time, a job is a job. And I'm sure that by 1907, the tension in the world that was already building just kind of reared its head as a as a mustache riot if you will riot's not the right word a mustache strike you know it's funny what what humans will pick as their um symbol for lack of a better word that this is what we're choosing to fight over and it's going to be our mustache <laughs> That's, that's not what wrong. I think anyway. I mean, you think about like the Industrial Revolution and everything that came with that. I'm sure that before that, when you were dining in a French restaurant, the waiter would have never thought about a mustache. That was just par for the course. Or any restaurant for that matter. But there, there you have it. The history of the mustache strike of 1907. I'm, I keep giggling because I've got the picture up of... The- the general with the mustache. I mean, it is <laughs> it is such a silly thing that it, I just. It's delightful. Yep, absolutely delightful. That's that's why I could not not tell the story. It makes me so happy because my next story is equally delightful, but in a very different way. Well, let's just record next week's episode. <laughs> I don't have my notes done. That's fair. <laughs> I had to get my notes together in a hurry because, yeah, like I, it all was in my brain. I was like pacing. I was like, but then there's this and then there's that. And what about this? Ugh. I well, could have gone on but... more, but because I have one more character, but I think he's worthy of his own. His mustache is worthy of its own story. <laughs> Dang. I know, right? Well, if you've enjoyed this traipse through life and the bizarre recurrence of the year 1907 and can't wait to see what unintentional crossovers we bring next week, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about the history of mustaches, tell them to skip past my story if they're not looking for a buzzkill. And on that note, 
Goodbye. Or start with her story and end with mine. <laughs> yeah, you know, really get yourself super down and then come back up. Yes, in fact. <laughs> All right. On that note, goodbye. Bye. Bye.